Isaiah. Isaiah is such an important text. It's why we read Isaiah at Christmas. It's an important text for this moment. And how can I say that with confidence? Well, Jesus himself referred to Isaiah more than any other scripture apart from the book of Psalms. When Isaiah was explaining to the people of his time what it is that he was doing in the world, he looked back to Isaiah. And when Jesus in Luke launched his entire ministry, he starts by quoting Isaiah 66. So the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news. And if you follow on through the Gospels, there are echoes of Isaiah everywhere. In fact, sometimes Isaiah is called a fifth gospel. And it's in Isaiah that we find first hints of the advent of a Messiah, that the Messiah will come, who will be like a suffering servant, by whose wounds we will be healed. That's all in Isaiah. And it's in Isaiah this morning, I hope, we'll get in a picture of what the salvation that Jesus brings into the world, which is what Christmas is about, what it looks like. What is the salvation that we as Christians hope for? What are the ultimate purposes of God in the world? Would you like to know that? Are you interested? Okay, let's pray, and then we'll have a look at these texts. Father, this morning, as we turn our eyes towards this Christmas season, this first week in Advent, I pray really this morning that we would hear again your promise for the world. That, Lord, you would awaken in us hope that we would be able to lift our eyes to see what it is you are doing, even now. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we get into this text uh, on Isaiah, and I'm going to focus mainly on Isaiah this morning, uh, I just wanted to remind ourselves who Isaiah was writing to. When Isaiah, as it were, was written, what was going on around? And it was a very difficult time. Can you imagine a very difficult time? Okay. Well, (laughs) Isaiah was writing to a downtrodden, beaten-up, disappointed, discouraged, this-will-never-end kind of people, Israel, in exile. Isaiah covers a very long span, and there's some argument. Is Isaiah written by one author or more than one author? It covers uh, uh, decades. But there's no doubt that the text we're looking at this morning was written to a people who had been in exile for 70 years. Israel, as you will remember, had been conquered by the Assyrians from the north and then later by the Babylonians, and their people had been carried off into exile. And a lot of the Old Testament prophets that we read were active during this time of exile. And in fact, some people would say that the whole Old Testament, the Torah, was assembled during the time of exile. So it's a people who are experiencing disappointment, discouragement, hopelessness, all that good stuff. And it's into that context that Isaiah writes. And it must have felt to the people of the time that the curse of Eden was very real. The curse of Eden by which mankind and the creation had been sort of put at odds. 
that everything was going to be struggle from here on in. That the natural world would seem an alien and dangerous place. Do you hear any kind of resonances? That's what it must have felt like to Israel in exile in Babylon. Listen, I've lived long enough to know what you human beings are like. If you go through, or a human being goes through a long period of discouragement, what happens is, over time, your horizons start to come down, don't they? It starts to become almost, if it goes on long enough, painful to hope for anything. You dare not hope because it may be just another excuse for discouragement. You dare not dream because it may just be another reason for disappointment. But it's in exactly that kind of moment that the words of Isaiah we read this morning ring out. Come, everyone who thirsts. Are you thirsty this morning? Come, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. To a beaten down, discouraged people, God says, lift your eyes. Lift your eyes to what I'm going to do in the world through the advent of a Messiah a suffering servant. And the image of salvation we're going to see now is startlingly bigger. It's more epic, and it's more full of surprises than we could imagine. It's not about escape, interestingly enough. If you put people in difficult circumstances, they start to dream of escape. Wouldn't it be nice to get out of here? Wouldn't it be nice to get out of this weary world and escape off to something we might call heaven. Is that the gospel that you've heard over the years? But Isaiah presents a very different kind of picture. It's not about disappearing off, it's about something coming into the earth. And it's so important that we know this as Christians, I think particularly for this time. And so I was just trying to think about how to talk about this. And and I want to use a kind of analogy of a walk that I go on. And it's a walk that I go on down by the C&O Canal Path. Do you you know that? On the Maryland side. I always go to the Maryland side. Marylanders are much nicer than Virginians. (laughs) Boo. Boo. (laughs) And, uh, but I I like that. It's the uh, the canal side. There's a canal. On the other side of the River Potomac, there's a canal. And so I go down there when I'm feeling discouraged. My wife and I, we often go down there. When things are a bit low, we say, "Let's let's go on that walk. And what it starts with, this walk, no, let's just go back one image. Yeah, it's that. Now, that may not look very exciting to you, but it's free. It's a free parking lot. You don't have to pay 20 quid or whatever it is. You have to in lots of other ways you get into that river. This one is free. I don't know why it's free, but it is. And that's the great first surprise in Isaiah. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. That doesn't make sense, does it? You can't buy and eat if you don't have any money, do you? Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Not only is this entrance into salvation free, 
But it seems that if there is some buying to do, and there is, then God himself is going to supply the means to buy the money. Put yourself forward now to the first followers of Jesus who would have known this text as they begin to wrestle with and try to understand what it is that Jesus had done. That there was this debt out of Eden. That for humanity, all of us, east of Eden, there was a debt that we could not pay. And Jesus came to supply, to be the means by which we could buy what was no longer rightfully ours. Come, buy, eat without money. God not only open-handedly invites us freely into salvation, but he provides the means to come in himself. Now, I don't know about you, but whenever something is offered to me freely, I get a bit suspicious. What's the catch? And can you imagine what it would be like as people in Babylon spending 70 years in exile to hear those words? Yeah, sure, right. Sure. Sure. Hard to believe, God, after 70 years of exile, this promise. And it's interesting to me how Isaiah continues, and I hear these words of comfort that we can also receive this morning. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. Now, I've been a dad for about 18 years. I'm not sure that I'm a great dad. I do my best. I get it wrong a lot of the time, but I have learned a few things over the years. And I tell you what, and here's a lesson for parents, if you would like it this morning, I offer you this freely, you don't have to buy it. The number one thing that I have learned to try to do well is to listen. When things go wrong, just try and stop whatever is happening. Calm everybody down. I'm British. Let's keep calm. And let's start listening. God has just put before a beaten down, broken people an extraordinary promise. And then he tells them three times, you need to listen. You need to stop listening to all those other voices, those fears that are playing in your head. This can never change. This will never get any better. This is all we'll ever experience. This is it. Let's just make the best of what we've got. Let's not dream. Let's not hope. You need to stop all that talk and listen. Incline your ear. Come to me. It's not the easiest thing to do in a difficult time, is it? To stop and really listen. And you're not being invited here to some soup kitchen or a charitable handout. You're being invited to a banquet of rich food. Delight yourselves in rich food. It was my 20th anniversary, well, wedding anniversary, and my wife and I decided we'd go to Jamaica. I don't know why, we just did. So we did. We went to Jamaica. We had a week of eating rich food. It was just everywhere. You couldn't turn anywhere. There was just more food being offered to you. 
And the image that God presents of salvation is like that. It's like a banquet. It's more than you could ever expect. A feast which culminates like all celebrations with the raising of a cup, a toast. And as that cup is raised, God makes a covenant, a promise. It's good news when God makes a promise. God does not break his promises. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, God says. In the middle of this banquet, I'm going to make you a promise. My steadfast, sure love for David. Lucky old David. No. What he means is love like he loved David for you. This is no one-time deal being offered you. It's the same faithful, steadfast love that God demonstrated for David is now being offered freely to anyone who comes to the banquet. Does that sound good? So then the next question is, well, who's coming? Who's coming to this banquet? And that's the next big surprise. Who's being invited? And the scale of the invitation is breaking. Can we go back, uh, breathtaking. Can we go back to the, the images of my little walk? So I've entered into this free parking lot, and then I go down towards the canal. I, I don't know if we can go there. Can we go to the next image? Oh, there it is. And the canal looks a little bit like that. It's, uh, it's rather picturesque. It's a bit broken down. It's stuffed full of weeds and strange growths. You don't want to look too carefully at what's growing in that canal. And that's a bit like often how I feel as I start my walk. There's just a lot of stuff going on in my life, and some of it you wouldn't want to look too hard at. But then as you walk on, suddenly and unexpectedly that happens. Suddenly the whole landscape changes, and the canal opens up into wide water. And it's as if my sort of inner landscape is forced to lift, and I start to breathe. It's wide water, a beautiful expanse, a much wider horizon of possibility. And that's what God says to Israel through Isaiah and to us. If we will listen... The horizon of God's salvation is much bigger than we can imagine. Far bigger. Isaiah goes on, See, I have made him, David, a witness to the peoples, plural, a ruler and commander, and I'm using the NIV translations. I think it's better here than the ESV. Surely you will summon nations, plural, you know not, and nations you do not know will come running to you. And it's as if Isaiah says to Israel, look, Israel, as you struggle with your problems, you started to think that salvation is just about you and getting you out of your mess. And church, as you struggle with the issues that you're struggling, not just this church, but the church across America, it's easy to start to imagine that salvation is just about the problems that we're facing and how do we get out of them. But Isaiah says, no, it's like that moment on the canal path. Lift your eyes to a much broader horizon. Salvation is a story that expands beyond the nation of Israel, beyond any idea of nationality, ancient or modern, with David imagined as a sort of world king, a representative world king, a witness to the peoples, plural, a ruler and commander of the peoples, plural, 
something fulfilled, Christians would say, in Jesus who is born of David's line. The image of salvation expands across the entire globe. It's not just for us. Now, again, imagine, if you will, how that sounds to an exiled people living more or less as semi-slaves in Babylon. Barely credible, wouldn't you say? Difficult to believe. But it gets better. Isaiah continues, Nations will come running to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. What? We're living in exile? And that's glory? That word glorification is interesting. It crops up in the New Testament around the person of Jesus. And when does the glorification of Jesus happen? On the cross. John prayed this, Jesus prayed this, rather, recorded by John, around the moment of his own crucifixion. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Glorify you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before you, before the world exists or existed. God's glory doesn't come in the way that we expect it to come, does it? It just doesn't. The simplest way to understand that word glorified, Jesus was praying to be filled with a divine being to the fullest extent possible, to demonstrate to the world what the glory of God looks like, and it looks like the cross. Self-giving love. The presence of God coming into the world. And it must have been very hard at the time of Jesus' crucifixion to see that as glory. It probably didn't feel very splendid. It's been hard in our own moment, isn't it? To see how Jesus is working. Lord, what are you doing? How are you working through the church right now in America for your glory? It's hard to know. We have to trust somehow, right? Right? that God is still at work because of what he has promised. Come, listen, give ear. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Didn't Jesus say, probably again drawing on Isaiah, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And you know, if that was all that Isaiah had presented to us as an image of salvation, that Jesus then walks out on the earth for his life and ministry, to me that would be enough. That's not bad, is it? It's a salvation freely entered, like a park in my parking lot, a banquet, a feast, with at the heart of it the promise of everlasting love that transcends all nationality, with a world king Jesus for all people, with the purposes of glorifying, filling the earth with God's presence, and the moment for it is always, in a sense, now. It's already happening through Christ. Isn't that enough? Would you be satisfied with that? That'd be pretty good. But our walk through Isaiah hasn't finished, and my walk along the CNO canal path hasn't finished either. 
Towards the end of the walk, I begin to hear the sound of the Great Falls. I don't know if you've ever been there. You can hear the Great Falls from a distance. Rushing waters. I don't know if we've got an image of that. There it is. It's an image of impossible abundance. And as you stare and look, you're like, where does all this water come from? It's astonishing how much water just pours down every day, all day, all night, 24-7. An image of impossible abundance, almost primordial chaos as well. It's chaotic. The waters pour down. Almost like, I don't know, the waters of creation, perhaps. For me, when I get to that point, it draws me very much into the sense of the natural world around me and its scale, that it is far greater than me, far more out of my control than I imagine. And as you get towards the end of this text we've looked at this morning, Isaiah, you get a startling revelation that the salvation that Isaiah is presenting to a beaten, downtrodden, exiled people doesn't end with people, human beings. No, it's even bigger than that. In fact, when it comes to salvation, the whole creation itself, the natural world, is also in view. This is what Isaiah says. You will go out in joy, people, and be led forth in peace. And then here it comes. As we do that, as human beings enter into this salvation, the mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. What? And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And again, for an exiled people who are experiencing hardship, the curse of Eden would have seemed very real. And the curse of Eden put mankind at odds with the natural world around him. And here, Isaiah presents an image that as people go forward, as humankind steps forward into this salvation, the salvation purposes of God, the natural world itself around us starts to respond. Now, I don't think, though I don't know, the mountains and the hills will literally break forth into singing. It's possible. I don't know what that would be like. I think it's probably poetic language. I'm not sure the trees of the fields will literally clap their hands. But the imagery is very clear and very specific. Instead of the thorn, instead of the earth only grudgingly giving up fruit, will grow the cypress. And instead of the briar, a prickly thing, shall come up myrtle. It's an image of the new heavens and the new earth. And it gets picked up right at the end of what we call the Bible, the last book, Revelation, where John the Revelator, undoubtedly drawing on Isaiah, tells us that with the coming again, that thing that we are pointing forward to in Advent of Jesus, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. This is the end of the story. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God in the new heavens and the new earth. That's Christmas. 
That's what Christmas, the hope of Christmas, is pointing for. Pointing towards. That's the longing that Christmas that should stir up in us. A salvation freely entered, a banquet, a feast, without the heart of it, the promise of everlasting love that transcends all nationality, wide horizons like open water, with the world king for all peoples, whose purpose is glorifying, filling the earth with God's presence, the moment for that already being now, and then as Isaiah 55 says, the ultimate fulfillment of all that is nothing less than new creation. Does that sound good? You don't look very sure. That is the promise of Christmas. That is what Jesus inaugurates in his incarnation, the new creation. That's why, for instance, Paul, when he refers to Jesus, he calls him a second Adam. This salvation story is far greater than we can imagine far greater. And so this Christmas, my prayer is that we as the church, and I've experienced the exhaustion and the tiredness that this whole long COVID season has brought on us. I've seen it in the church that I'm working with down in Charlotte, North Carolina. Just a lot of tiredness. It's gone on for what, two years now, is it? I don't know. Imagine it going on for another 50, no, 68. That'd be Babylon. Imagine where people, where you would feel like what you would feel like after another 68 years of this. It's not easy, is it? But the invitation that Isaiah presents to us, or God, I would say, presents to us through Isaiah is, okay, you need to listen. You need to lift your eyes and remember, be reminded of what God is doing on the earth. We may not be able to see it now. It may not look very glory, uh, glorifying right now, but we can be sure that God is doing this. God has promised and I love these words from Isaiah. Some of, one of my favorites of texts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eaters, all earthy, earthy language, flourishing. So shall my word be that. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. This is a promise. It's an absolute promise that this is going to happen. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's ultimate word to us is Jesus. Has Jesus come? Will he come again? So we can be sure that God will achieve the kind of salvation we see in Isaiah. Will you pray with me? Father God, this morning, as we come now to take communion together, recognizing that we need to feed off your life, that our own lives and our own hopes and dreams are insufficient, that it is your life, your salvation, your dream for humanity, if you will, that we need to feed on. But Lord, that even as we take the bread and the wine, that you would meet us where we need to be met, as Isaiah met a beaten, downtrodden, exiled people with these extraordinary words of hope and salvation. 
the Lord, you would touch our hearts as we feed off you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.